Welcome to the Newberry Tart Podcast. Your hosts, Marcy and Jenny, are talking and drinking their way through Newberry award-winning books, past and present. Hi, and welcome back to the Newberry Tart Podcast. I'm Marcy. And I'm Jenny. And today we are talking about 1983 Newberry honor book, Sweet Whispers Brother Rush by Virginia Hamilton. We have an annotation from the Newberry and Caldecott Awards, A Guide to the Medal and Honor Books, which is published by ALA. And I believe this is the 2016 edition. Marcy? I'm going to be reading this today. We want to warn listeners that it includes the word retarded, which we're quoting verbatim and not using ourselves to describe this book. And also just as a warning that it'll be part of the later discussion. The annotation reads... Life changes radically for 14-year-old Tree and her older retarded brother when the ghost of Brother Rush appears to Tree, first in the street and then in her home. The handsome ghost of her mother's brother takes her back in time to bear witness to the past and to learn about the terrible disease that is killing her own brother. Marcy, what did you think about this book? I think it <laughs> it's it's a difficult book to review. It's an intense book, for sure, and it's a little hard to categorize. I'm I'm wondering, like, as a first point, whether I would even call it... I'm not sure I would have considered it for the Newberry if I had been helping to judge at that time, because it seems a little age inappropriate. What do you think? That's kind of my first point about this book in relation to the Newberry Award. Like, I think this along with the Blue Sword, they're clearly YA books, like clearly YA books. Yeah. And I do think that this is a, a this is a definite case of these are excellent books. They're well-crafted. They're, they say something important to youth of today, but it's just outside of the eight, like just outside of the age group. And so these would have been prime like prince winners and prince honors Yeah, for me. I think so too. And I mean, that's not to undercut that there aren't, you know, there aren't children in these types of circumstances at all. But I think the, the level of the writing and the level of sophistication needed to read the story, one, because I do feel like it is a complicated story and it's told in a not straightforward way. Mm-hmm. And then some of the subject matter, not just the subject matter, but the the way that it's delivered, I feel like is just for a little bit of an older youth audience. It is. And it's describing hard things, which is fine in a Newbery book. But, you know, the main character, Tree, is 14 years old and she's way older than 14, really. You know, when you have a main character who's 10 and is older than her years, like that makes sense for the Newberry. But for this, a 14-year-old who's functioning as an adult, really, even though she shouldn't have to, just feels a little too old for the typical reader for of Newberry books specifically. Yeah. And I, I do think that, again, I you know, kids, uh, middle grade readers, kids of all ages are in unimaginably difficult situations every day. But there is, I think, the the amount of, I guess, the amount of violence and the amount of rawness in this situation and in this book, the really intense descriptions, the very grown-up emotions, and in some cases, events 
treatment of events, really to me, read this is a YA book, straight up YA book. Yeah. And I mean, just, just straight out of the gate as a warning to parents or, you know, librarians or teachers who want to know whether to recommend this book. It's well-written. It's not like, we're not saying it's like vulgar or anything like that. No, it's, not at all. It's describing grown-up things and it includes, and and some outdated terms for things. So her older brother is called retarded in this book, which is not acceptable. And he has other problems too. And the, the neighbor warns that someday he may rape someone. So that, and that's just straight up said in the book and, and the main character is outraged by it, but it's not unlikely in the context of this book. And there's mention of girls sleeping over and drugs and drinking and some violent events, not like aggressively violent events really, but like car accidents and things like that. So all of those topics are dealt with not in a way that particularly caters to younger readers. So just, just so that people have a heads up. There's also fairly detailed descriptions of child abuse. Yes. And yeah, and there's there's a, a lot of descriptions of medical situations. This is not to say that the book is bad in any way. It just is for a much mature, more mature audience than I would categorize the Newberry books in this day and age. Right. And that's coming from me, who is an avid lover of the graveyard book. So, like, I can handle, like, crazy assassin murderers. But this is on a different level of just, like, be prepared. But I almost feel like because of the stylization of the graveyard book and, and, and other other books that deal with hard topics, there there are style choices that are made that scaffold issues to be understood by younger readers. And I don't feel like there's the, there are those steps in this. This is very much, you are thrown into this world and it is brutal and it is hard. And there are no, there's no sugarcoating, there's no buffer. And it is an amazing book in that sense that it, it really sets a tone and a time and a place even though there are time trips and time slips. It really sets a tone and a time and a place that are, it, it's unlike a, really anything I've ever read before. Yeah, I have to agree. And the the level of sophistication, not in the story, but in the writing is amazing. It's layered, it's nuanced. It's like psychologically dense, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And I I think that as like if you had like 15 or 16 year old reader, perfect. You know, and as an adult, it's very satisfying. It's it's depressing, honestly, but it's very satisfying as a book. Fourteen-year-old Tree, who that's a nickname for Teresa, is left in charge of her older brother, who has a variety of issues: medical, psychological, developmental. She is responsible for running the household and also getting herself to school and taking care of the basic needs of the household. She hasn't really noticed boys very much, and but the book opens with her being catcalled and her being noticed for, for starting to develop by some of the boys in her neighborhood. And she notices this like beautiful guy that she's never seen before standing on the, like standing on the edge of everything. And she recognizes him as someone known as Brother Rush. Yeah. And it's such an interesting introduction too, because this is like the first page, like the first paragraph even. It's an interesting beginning to a book because it just like 
cannonballs right into her emotional life. But she does, she develops this crazy like crush on this guy that she has never seen before, but she somehow knows his name and he just seems different. And over the next few weeks, she sees him here and there, but not every day. And he never talks to her. Like they never interact. But she is in one of those like kind of instant, almost puppy love type of situations where she's like the way he dresses, you know, his smile, his way he stands. I mean, she's just like noticed everything about him. And so imagine her surprise when she comes home and she's taking care of the house and she walks into one of the little rooms that they, they fixed up into like a little sitting room and brother Rush is standing in the middle of the table not like on the table, not like a Mick Jagger dancing in a bar situation, but like <laughs> in the table, like, like if you picture like the table is a skirt. Yeah. <laughs> and it's interesting because like, there's no, like what's happening. There's nothing. She's like, Oh, he's a ghost. Like instant understanding, total acceptance. Like she's scared, but fascinated, but like, there's no question in her mind or in the book, you know, in the narrative of the book, like he's just, he's a ghost. Yeah. Which I think is really interesting because so much is made in most books. There can be often books that take a third of the book or a half of the book for a um, protagonist to come to grips with someone as a ghost. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it, I think it speaks to, to Tree's character that she's like, okay, he's actually a ghost. This guy that I was really like heart eyes for is He's a ghost and he's in my house. <laughs> well, and honestly, that's the most childlike thing about her to me is that she has the credulousness to be like, got it, ghost, check. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, yeah, that and her continued hope that her mom will take care of them. Yes, that, because those are the two things. Another big factor in this is that her dad, she she believes her dad is dead, and but she doesn't know him. And her mom works away from them. So her mom works as a nurse and she has to just take the work that she can get and live in where she works. So Tree is home in taking care of this apartment with her brother, but she's the only responsible one. And her mom comes home like, who knows when, like in three days, in a month, nobody knows. And she comes home and stocks them up on food and everybody like hugs on her and everything because they miss her so much. But, and then she's gone. So Tree is really, truly on her own. And having a ghost in your house when there's nobody else to deal with it. Like, she wasn't even like, ooh, who could I tell? Like, how can I get help? She's just like, all right, I deal with this. And she does tell her brother Dab, which is short for Dabney. He, she shows Brother Rush to him. <laughs> so when Tree first sees this ghost standing in this little closet of a room that she has, she is scared and she's surprised but accepting. But she also notices that he is not trying to like communicate with her or interact with her. The only thing is that in his hand, he has what looks kind of like a mirror and through it, she can see something else, like something outside of where she is. And she, when she gets close to it, she slips through it into like experiencing something else. Like she's not herself, but at the same time she is herself and she's in a different time and she's feeling what somebody else was experiencing in that time, which is, of course, bizarre. <laughs> and it's funny because 
it's it's more to me this book reads more as magical realism than science fiction even though a lot of the descriptions you, that I found called it science fiction because there's time travel and there's ghosts and and those are science fictiony things but it doesn't feel science fictiony to me well I love the the mirror as a device for these time traps and I love that you're I mean you're really you're right there's nothing like there's nothing magical aside from the actual like trip mm-hmm. from the from the actual traveling. There's nothing and there being a ghost. There's nothing like magical. It's just this like fact like this is what happened. I slipped into the mirror and then I saw these things and I started and you know one thing that I really liked is that Tree goes into this situation and she's in this car with this family and then she starts to realize who the different people are, which are Brother Rush, her mom, Dabney, and herself, as, but they're, they're small children. And what I think is interesting, even though I do have questions, is, you know, does she, does she appear, like, is she in her body in that car with them, or is she just hovering? That part was a little unclear to me. I think... It read to me as though she is not doing either of those things. I think she just is existing in the minds or experiences of the people in the past and is just aware of it. Okay. Because it did seem like she was traveling in a matter of speaking and there was a physical component to it, particularly when later on they're not in the car, they're actually outside. Um, yeah, it seemed to me that she was feeling what they were feeling and not what she was feeling. Okay. So she became kind of a conduit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or more of just like a, a consciousness rather than a physical part of the scene. Hmm. Well, then I think, I mean, I think for me reading this then, I think in like my head, I'm going to, the easiest way for me to think of it then is her like watching a movie but she could feel what they were feeling as well. Yeah. So th- it's hard for me to grap- like grasp this exactly, like how, what those time slips were like exactly, other than she does go like it, like she, she feels like she's going through the mirror and then she feels like she's there. Yeah. But there's, not, there's a lot of missing like physicality as far as like is she – just herself, but invisible. Well, she talks about like really specific things. Like she, when she's being herself as a toddler, like she can feel like the car seat slippery under her bare feet. Or when she's her brother, she can feel like, you know, the sensations that he's feeling in the wind going past the car. Like, I think it's more like, more like possession without influencing the events that have happened in the past. Okay. I think that that makes that that's making it make a little more sense. I think it it is open to interpretation to a certain degree, but I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense to me that it is a type of possession which goes along with some of the other themes in the book, right? Like this whole idea cuz for a while I thought um cuz Dab starts to get sick and he's 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 already had a track record of having like having some sickness where his like his body hurts. He starts, you know, he's vomiting. He doesn't feel well. He has to sleep a bunch. But um, 
I started to think that Brother Rush might be possessing Dab. I wondered a little bit about that too before they got a little more specific about Dab's other issues. Because Dab has their whole life been, they describe it in different ways. And she just calls it being a little different. Other people are not uh, so kind, but he basically has some mental difficulties or some developmental delays that sort of add up to not being like functional as a responsible adult, even though he is older than Tree. So she really has to take care of him. And he has good days and bad days, which seems totally like in character with the way he's described, but she's left alone to deal with it. But he also, what Jenny was talking about, is having a physical like illness on top of this. And as is so often the case with anyone with mental difficulties, like his physical issues are sort of being overlooked or dismissed because everybody's so used to having to, you know, quote, deal with him in all these different ways. And so she's the only one who's concerned, even though their mother's a nurse and it comes out later that the mother is aware of the possibility of what is happening to him physically, but just is ignoring it in hopes that it doesn't happen. And one of the big things uh, that happened, well, one of the big signs and one of the reasons why I thought he was being possessed by Brother Rush is that Dab has a lot of cuts and open sores on his hands Mm -hmm. and they look gnarled. And Tree starts to notice that Brother Rush has those. Yeah. So there are these like similarities. And at first you're like, what's happening? Is he possessing him? Like, is this ghost like a a malevolent thing that's causing harm? But it's really kind of the opposite. I mean, the ghost does not actually speak to them, but as I, my theory is that he's warning them because their family and the same thing is happening to Dab that happened to Brother Rush. I think you're right. I think that, yeah, I think he's definitely warning them and trying to get Tree and Dab to some degree, one, to let them know that he had what Dab has. Mm -hmm. And then two, to let them know that they need, he needs medical attention, that Dab needs medical attention or he needs some kind of, some help, (laughs) some kind of intervention of some sort that, that tree is, you know, that tree is doing her best, but she, it's above her, it's like above her ability and above her comprehension. Yeah. So it also, I feel like is, I, I, this is a little more buried or maybe it isn't, but to me, it felt like he was validating what Tree and Dab had felt, which is that he was, that they were neglected by their mom yeah, and that there was, but it wasn't just neglect because of a need that she had to work, that the mother was overwhelmed when they were a child, when they were children and it manifested itself in abuse. Um, yeah. And so I I don't really know. I still am, am kind of struggling with what exactly that was supposed to show other than your mom isn't perfect. But I don't think that that was something they needed to learn. Yeah, I knew that. I mean, through the course of all of this, through the, the course of the book, it's basically just more of 
Dab getting sicker and Tree trying to keep control of their just day-to-day life and sort of failing more and more over time. And these time slips into the past with the ghost where she sees various scenes from her family's past, learns that her father is in fact not dead but left them, that their mother abused Dab as a child, not her, doted on Tree, absolutely doted on Tree. And that brother rushes her uncle, her mom's brother, who got sick in a similar way to Dab and drank a lot and died in a car accident that her father was also in but did not die in. So, like, all of this sort of gradually snowballs until they get to a crisis point. And Dab is so sick that he can't move, like laying on the bed hurts him beyond bearing. And Tree just does not know what to do. And their mom comes back once or twice in the middle of all this, but basically just like arrives in the middle of the night, gives them food, is like, Dab is fine, and then leaves. (laughs) And she uh, also... Also, the mom has during this time procured like this boyfriend whose name, his nickname is Silversmith. And she also has gotten a car, which to Tree seems like the height of luxury. And Tree's kind of, I think, always resentful of the time that her mom spends away, even though it's necessary for the family, but is extra resentful that her mom has the time to spend with Silversmith and the money to spend on a car and that she, Tree, does not get to share in any of it. There's a scene where Tree confronts her mom about tying Dab to the bedpost and and whooping him. And her mom, Vi, Mavai, accidentally breaks a water glass and she she cuts herself and burns herself. And while Tree is is, you know, starting to look at her and, and start help her fix fix up her wounds, Vi is is trying to figure out how Tree knows about this situation. It's a really affecting scene where Tree is the person who now knows about the abuse when she there's no way, no like practical way she could know. And she's also tending to her mother's wounds, which if you if you look at it, you could say that her mother had wounds that caused her to abuse her brother. It's just it's there's so many layers here. Like you were saying earlier, there's so much going on and there's so many layers and it's just really, it's upsetting, but it also is just beautifully done. Yeah. Well, and also, and you know, it, it does not portrayed this way in the book at all, but there would be a way to read this in which the stress of all this is causing tree to hallucinate the ghost. And to me, that scene in particular proves that that's not the case. Because she's mm-hmm. she's telling her mother a factual thing that happened that nobody else could know about, and it's it's just true, right? Like it's just like the ghost, right? There there would be a way to doubt it. There would be the common thing to do would be to doubt what's happening, but all of these things are just accepted as fact. And in fact, when she tells Mavi or Mavi about the ghost, like that is accepted also, even though she tries to show brother rush to her mom and her mom can't see him, but she completely accepts it as true. So like that, that part made her seem like a better mom. Like she completely believes what her daughter's telling her and accepts it as true, even though it's very fantastical. That's a very interesting 
thing for me because it shows growth on Vi's part mm-hmm. and, you know, taking responsibility, understanding that those past, those past actions were not good. And I, I feel like in a lot of books, again, with, you know, when I was saying that, that figuring out someone's a ghost could take like the whole book and another book <laughs> showing growth usually is a much more, a much bigger deal, right? It's, it's a much more, there's much more exposition. There's uh, like, there can be whole sections on books about it or a whole book about it. And it was really interesting to see that movement and that, that change with kind of a handful of scenes. Yeah. I mean, the, the way things are done are so smooth in this book. Like the story itself for me can be a little like turbulent, but the devices in the book, if that makes sense, are so clear mm-hmm. and smooth. Like the the ghost has this mirror. Like he literally is carrying the past with him. Like he is the fa- he like he is their family carrying their past. Like that's such a clear and easy to understand thing. Mm-hmm. And it functions so well in the story. It's kind of amazing. I mean, let's see. I was reading. There's this really interesting article about the use of ghosts in black literary works especially, uh, I think specifically this book and Beloved by Toni Morrison. The article is by somebody named uh, Gail Sabat from Johns, let's see, Johns Hopkins University Press. We can put that in the show notes. But she quotes Toni Morrison talking about Beloved, saying that if we don't keep in touch with our ancestors, we are in fact lost. And I think that's really the point of what the ghost is doing, right? He's trying to help them from being lost. I feel like he's trying to save them from that. Although the interesting thing to me about this book and the thing that seems a little muddled is that I don't I don't feel like he does save them. I feel like he saves Tree, but I feel like his effort to possibly save Dab is lost because the adults, the actual adults who could take action, which is take him to a medical facility way too long. And I feel like Tree ultimately is saved in this book that she comes to understand that like she comes to understand her own strength and she comes to understand that life can be different. I know. But mm, I I have a problem though. Like I feel like all of the reviews that came to that kind of a conclusion Mm-hmm. bother me in a way. There's a review in encyclopedia.com about this book and it says the novel exposes <clears throat> the novel exposes the desperation and isolation that poverty often brings, but also offers hope that through struggle, hardships can be overcome. And for me, that's kind of insulting, right? Because Oh, no, I didn't mean it in that way. Okay, no. because a, oh, lot, God, a, no. a lot of the reviews feel like that. And I'm like, okay, Mavai, the mom, her struggle is overcome by, like, she's overcome the struggle of having this difficult son by basically abusing and leaving her family. You know, she over, she's starting to overcome her financial struggles because she got a boyfriend who wants to take care of them. Like, Tree is struggling and she's surviving, but like nothing changes in that respect, except she loses the person she loves the most. And the brother's struggle is overcome by dying. So it seems like they're saying that like, if you have these problems, the only way that you can make anything better is just to be gone, which seems really insulting to anybody with any kind of mental difficulties, because the idea that the only solution is for you just to like die and be gone, and that makes life better for everybody, seems awful. 
I mean, I agree. And I think, <laughs> I, I don't know when that was written. A lot of the annotations and notes that I found on this book were actually written in 1982 when the book was originally published. And so I think that, I don't know when the encyclopedia review was written, but I think it's possible that it was close to that time. And that was, I think, a notion of like, you know, if you work hard enough, if you want it hard enough, if you're made of tough enough stuff, then you'll overcome. And we now know that that is grossly inaccurate at best and then harmful at worst. And so I think for me, when I was saying that she's learned that life could be different, I mean that she doesn't have to be the grown up. Yeah, but I feel like the way that's accomplished is because her brother dies. You know, it's yeah, not it's, it's not horrible. like anybody like works through a problem. It's like, no. oh, he's gone and now you can go live your life. And it just that part of it hits me really the wrong way. Because the the point of this book seems a little bit muddled. Like the story, fabulous. The writing is amazing. But but like what is the point? Like what is the I I agree with you on that. I I do feel like it is at an expense. You know, there is a price paid. And I'm not sure if that price is really examined enough. Mm-hmm. You know, like even in the hospital, Mavai is like her most important thing is that the that she's recognized as a nurse. Yeah. Well, I mean... Not the- necessarily that... that you know, Dab has got this condition. It's a, a porphyria, a type of porphyria, which she already knew about and was not, was le- leaving untreated. So she was letting him suffer. And I guess I, I'm just, I do think that by the end, Tree is allowed to kind of become a child or become a teen. But there is a huge price that's paid for that. And I don't feel like there's a reckoning or a reconciliation of that fact in the book. I think this is incredibly written and I think it's a really interesting book. I do think it was, I think it was written and published in a time where black authors, black children's authors and young adult authors were kind of just getting more and more recognition. And Virginia Hamilton is seen as a pioneer for black women writers in children's literature, rightfully so. And I think it is an issues book to some degree, but I do think it has a lot more to offer and a lot more to analyze beyond that. Oh yeah. I mean, this, this, this book is about the story. It's also, it's also about, you know, the black cultural experience in America and and the fact that the racial inequities that were happening affected them disproportionately. So like the poverty made everything worse, right? The working economic situation made everything worse. The the healthcare situation made everything worse. But it's still, this book is still like very oriented on the plot. So mm-hmm. it's an it's an interesting combination. I have to say that the family's cultural history did influence some things like the mother, Mavai, 
part of her acceptance of the fact that this ghost that she couldn't see was there and was true was attributed like by her to the family's African heritage. She said that like when she was young, she knew people who could see things sort of beyond and she could tell that that was true for tree. So like that was part of what informed her, her like her willingness to suspend disbelief. So that was very interesting. It was a cool way to like tie in, like the cultural history to what's happening now, but also the personal family history. So it was very like tightly woven in that way. I think the decisions that Mavai makes are going to haunt the family, no pun intended, for for longer. And I think that's one of the points of the story too, is that actions carry through generationally. They do. And I think that that's, that's one of the things that, one of the main takeaways from for me from this book is that there's generational trauma and sometimes it's not fixable and sometimes it is it's going to continue to create pain and suffering as years go on. Jenny, do you have any read-alikes for this book? I do. This was a difficult book to find or think of read-alikes for and so I didn't take the easy way out, I think, but I did a little bit. <laughs> One of the major parts of Sweet Whisper's Brother Rush that I loved was the the sense of the sense of kind of a, a magical story or a magical journey. And so I really want to recommend Virginia Hamilton's her collections of folk tales. Nice. There's the People Could Fly, American Black Folk Tales and Her Stories, African American Folk Tales, Fairy Tales and True Tales. I love the extreme variety in points of view and takes that these fairy tales have. Despite being in collections, they're they're very distinct to each other. Nice. What about you? I actually, uh, um, thank you for that recommendation because one of the things that I'm taking away from this book is that I really need to read more African folk tales and like traditional stories because I feel like there's a lot more layers to be unpacked in this book that we didn't get to because of just a basic unfamiliarity. So I want to uh, I want to help educate myself a little better there, especially since this book honestly like in ways it was grim but it was also entertaining and so well written. I feel like there's more to be enjoyed, you know, in that vein if I can find it. But my I always resort to Newbery books. I apologize. It's just my world. <laughs> this reminded me a little bit of When You Reach Me by Rebecca Stead mm-hmm. in a way more simplified way, of course, but it's got that magical realism, but very prosaically done. Like, is this real? Is this not real? It's a, There's, you know, strange people like yelling on the street. You're like, I don't know if this is true or fantastic or just like a sad situation. So in that way, it reminded me a little bit of it. But honestly, it's very hard to find a real read-alike for this book because it is unique. So it is very unique. And then I do have just kind of a a quick, very grown-up read-alike. Ooh, yeah. So it did remind me of Kindred by Octavia Butler, which is a science fiction book. And it's about a woman in the 1970s, a black woman in the 1970s, who is pulled into the past, into the actual past, where she has to disguise herself as a a slave on a farm 
whenever she time travels back to the plantation era south. Hmm. And she starts to see that there are family ties to where and when she's traveling. Interesting. I have never read that, even though I, I know I should have. It's one of my absolute favorite books. She's one of my absolute favorite writers. If you get into speculative fiction or Afrofuturism fiction, she is absolutely like the godmother of those. So. Oh, I'm a dummy. And I even mentioned this while we were talking, but Beloved by Toni Morrison would be another good read to like if you like this. It's got like another teenage girl protagonist. There's ghosts. There's family history. It's definitely different in tone, <laughs> but... Um, uh, would be another another good book to read. But those last two are, I would say, squarely late teen adult recommendations. Yes, not for children. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we are happy that you joined us today talking about Sweet Whispers Brother Rush. I have to say, I don't know if you know this, but on our website, every episode has its own page where we put our show notes and information about it, and we take a picture of every book. And if you are bored, please go and look at the one that we have for this book, because I am so proud of it. <laughs> I think it's the best one I've ever done. It's beautiful, Marcy. <laughs> I love it. And I know that nobody's going to see it, but it makes me happy. So it's it's NewburyTart.com. There's a little thing that's... there's a episode index for every episode that we have. And if you click on the one for this episode, the picture is there and uh, I love it. It makes me happy. (laughs) (laughs) So, but also go check us out on Facebook, rate us on iTunes and anywhere else that you listen because it really helps us out. We appreciate it. Next episode, we will be finishing the season with Dicey Song by Cynthia Voigt. And that will that will bring the season to an end. Next up, uh, 2007, which we will be kicking off with Rules by Cynthia Lord. Thanks for listening. Bye. Production assistance for Newberry Tart is provided by Raphael Siebenman and Liam Grove. Graphic design by Liz Mytinger. Intro and outro by Ariana Hargrave. Theme music for this podcast is provided by the laid-back and local Throckmorton Ukulele Band. You can hear more of their music on Facebook. Find more Newberry Tart episodes at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Our website is Newberry Tart. That's N-E-W-B-E-R-Y-T-A-R-T dot com.